welcome to day 147 of the story that changes everything. Our readings for today begin the beautiful and dramatic book of Esther. We're reading Esther chapters 1 through 3, and we're adding Psalm 63. Here's some thoughts to guide your reading for today. In our English Bibles, the book of Esther appears as the last book in the section of the Old Testament often labeled history. However, in the Hebrew Bible or Tanakh, Esther appears in the third of three sections in that section known as the writings. In Jewish life, Esther is always read during the Feast of Purim, and as we will see, the book is filled with feasts. The story is set in Persia several years after Cyrus has allowed many of the Jewish exiles who had been living in Babylon the opportunity to return home to Jerusalem. However, as the narrative makes clear, not all the Israelites had returned to Judea. Many were still trying to keep their way of life alive amid the Persian rule. There are several important themes in the book, but one of the most important and challenging is the hiddenness of God. Esther and Song of Songs are the only books in the Bible that do not contain the name of God or explicitly draw attention to God's activity in the world. John Wesley reflects on God's absence in Esther this way, The name of God is not found in this book, but the finger of God is, directing so many minute events for the deliverance of his people. Learning how to live faithfully in the spaces that seem to be devoid of God's presence is likely one of the reasons that this text makes it into the Holy Scripture and why so many across Christian history have found comfort and instruction in its pages. The first chapter opens with the opulent glory of the royal court of Persia. The king, named in the text is Ahasuerus in English or Xerxes in Greek. He reigned over Persia from 486 to 465 BC. And as is often the case in the biblical narrative, Xerxes is the main historical figure of the day, but he will be at best a supporting actor in the story of God and God's people. The story begins with the royal banquet. There are six royal banquets or festivals in the book of Esther. The purpose of this party is for Xerxes to flaunt his superior wealth and greatness before the people. It is also possible that this party is the wedding feast of the king to Queen Vashti, or It could be that he was just showing off. At the end of the six-month celebration, he immediately throws another feast for all the citizens of Susa. Notice the detailed descriptions of both the drinking vessels and the royal wine that filled them. In connection to this community celebration, King Xerxes throws a more private affair in the enclosed garden of the royal palace. As the party starts to wind down, the intoxicated king calls his beautiful wife Vashti to come and display herself before himself and all the other male leaders of the kingdom. He sends seven named eunuchs to go and retrieve her, but she refuses to come. No reason is given for her rejection of the king's command. Some early Jewish interpreters suggested that the command that she appear wearing her royal crown meant wearing only her crown and nothing else. If so, her refusal is a comment on her modesty. The first century historian Josephus reported, however, that her refusal was based upon Persian law, which would not allow her to be seen by strangers. Other commentators speculate that her refusal was perhaps based on her awareness of the possible abuse she might face standing in the middle of a mob of men at the end of seven days of drinking. Whatever her motivation, her refusal infuriated and likely embarrassed the king. In response, Xerxes gathered seven of his trusted advisors to get their legal advice. It appears, however, that his advisors, 
especially the primary spokesman Mimukin, were more gifted at placating the royal ego than interpreting the royal law. The speech from Mimukin is the longest monologue in the book. The focus of the address is not on the wrong done by Vashti, but on the men, starting with Xerxes, who believe that they have been wronged. The king's advisors fear that when and if Vashti's actions of self-protection and self-assertion are known in the empire, all the wives in the realm might start standing up for themselves also. Oh no. Not only are these supposedly powerful men exposed as utterly insecure, but many commentators find a kind of humorous irony in the king's edict. Vashti's punishment is that she may never enter the king's presence, which was the very thing she was refusing to do in the first place. Nothing else is said of Vashti in the book. Her primary role in this narrative is to create a space that will eventually be filled by Esther. However, contemporary interpreters encourage us as readers to not dismiss her presence as quickly as the writer of Esther seems to do. As commentator David Kleins notes, the only act that Vashti commits in the story is simply to assert her human right to say no, to determine where, when, and under what circumstances her body may be seen. One of the subversive aspects of biblical literature is the way it exposes the ugliness and arrogance of male authoritarianism in these kinds of stories, while subtly drawing our attention to the costly integrity of many of the women in these very same narratives. Vashti is among them. This kind of oppression is part of what the gospel calls God's people to reject, as we are invited to live in ways that look more like the image of God and God's kingdom and less like the ugly image of the empire. It's unclear how much time it takes for the king's anger to dissipate, but given the dates mentioned in chapter 2, it appears to be about four years later. His command against Vashti had left him without a queen. His personal attendant suggests a solution. He should gather all the young, beautiful, unmarried women throughout the empire to himself and find a new queen among them. The extravagance of Persia is again emphasized in the story when it describes the complex process that the king's new edict entailed and the year-long beauty routine that the potential candidates were put through prior to their only encounter with the king. Xerxes may be king, but this chapter introduces us to the two key characters in the story, two Jewish exiles, Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai's ancestry links him to the tribe of Benjamin and potentially through the names to the royal house of Saul. Given Mordecai's freedom and access to royal places and his presence at the king's gate in the story, it seems safe to assume that he must have held a position of influence in the king's administration, somewhat like Joseph to Pharaoh or Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar. Mordecai is not only a city official, but he's also the guardian of his uncle's orphaned daughter. We are given both Esther's Hebrew name, Hadassah, likely meaning Myrtle, and her non-Hebrew name, Esther, meaning either star in Persian or it's a form of the goddess Ishtar in Babylonian. The only other information given at this point in the story about her is that she's beautiful, very beautiful. Unsurprisingly, Esther's taken as part of the king's edict. Although Mordecai convinces her to keep her ethnic identity concealed, Esther's inner, and not just her outer beauty, begins to be revealed. Something about her draws the attention of Haggai, the eunuch put in charge of the women who had been caught up in the king's search. Another aspect of her character is revealed when she refuses to take anything from the women's house. 
Though this is the only chance for this taken one to take whatever she can, she takes nothing. She will not become a reflection of those who've taken and misused her. Eventually, it was Esther's turn, and she is called for her night with Xerxes. We are told that the king loved her and that he decided to make her queen and throw her a great banquet, perhaps another wedding feast. Although the text uses terms like love to describe Xerxes' feelings towards Esther, there's still much about this process that ought to trouble modern Christian readers. There have even been many attempts across Christian history to try and downplay the reality of what's taking place in this story. I mean, what do we do with the sexual aspects of the story, especially as it relates to the character and nature of Esther herself? I deeply appreciate the reflections of Old Testament scholar Elaine Bernius on this question. She writes, I would advocate that to define purity sexually is a privileged virtue and valid only in times and or cultures in which people are granted control over their bodies. Once a person is denied control over her body culturally or situationally, her purity can no longer be equated with her sexuality. The reality is Esther did not keep her virginity. However, she most definitely retained her purity. Esther was a woman who lived a life characterized by obedience, whose inward character more than her outward beauty brought her the favor of all she met, and whose faith in God and sacrificial love for her people brought about their salvation. May these be the qualities for which we remember her and by which she is judged, rather than for those events that happened to her over which she had no control. That's really good. The chapter ends with a failed assassination attempt by two men assigned to protect the king. Somehow the plot is made known to Mordecai, and somehow he gets word to Esther. In verse 22, Esther is referred to for the first time as queen as she goes to the king to make the deadly plot known to him. The matter is quickly investigated, verified, punished by impalement, and recorded. The reader expects Mordecai to be rewarded for his faithfulness to the king, But instead, as chapter 3 opens, we meet Haman the Agagite. This term only occurs here in Esther. Agag was the king of the Amalekites during the reign of Saul. Thus, it's likely that Haman is an Amalekite, part of that infamous group that had misused God's people during their flight from Egypt, the very people whom God had promised to eliminate from the earth. Thus, the early readers would likely have understood that the subplot of the story has suddenly shifted to a rivalry between two men from historically rival peoples, Mordecai the Jew and potentially from the house of Saul, against Haman the Amalekite, a member of the arch enemies of God and God's people. We're not told why Haman has received this favor from the king, but he has been elevated to such a status that other Persian officials now bow down to him in honor but not Mordecai. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he will not bow down. This may be, like the Hebrew children who would not bow to Nebuchadnezzar, that Mordecai thought Haman had elevated himself in some idolatrous way. However, the only reason the text gives is in verse 4. Mordecai is a Jew. So, it simply may be that a Jew will not bow to an Amalekite. No way, no how. His affront to Haman is made known to him, and his reaction is predictable. He's furious. Giving further validation to the potential Jewish versus Amalekite tensions is the fact that rather than take his wrath out solely on Mordecai, Haman decides to annihilate all the Jews under Persia's rule. 
Three chapters into the story, we already know how easily manipulated Xerxes can be. Haman works on him and receives a blank check of authority from the king to bring about the elimination of all the Jewish people under his reign. Through the casting of lots, the date for this holocaust is set for 11 months away. The deadly mandate is sent out throughout the land. Xerxes and Haman sit down to have a drink, and all of Susa responds in shock. The psalm for today, Psalm 62, laments and hopes from a place of shock when everything is now unstable and shaken. Here are some of the words. Only in God do I find my rest. My salvation comes from him. Only God is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I won't be shaken anymore. The only desire of this people is to bring others down low. They delight in deception. Only God is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I will not be shaken. Human beings are nothing but a breath. Human beings are nothing but lies. Don't trust in violence. Don't set false hopes in robbery. Strength belongs to God, and faithful love comes from you, my Lord. You will repay everyone according to their deeds. The psalm reads like it could be taken directly out of the story of Haman and Mordecai. There's much, almost too much, to take from these chapters in Esther for today. Sometimes I think we rob biblical stories of some of their power by immediately trying to abstract principles from them. There are certainly some important truths in the chapters for today, but maybe we should just let the tensions and the challenges of the story sit with us and capture us in our imagination. Things in our lives can sometimes be so convoluted and complex that we wonder if God is even present. We must trust that God is not absent, but is at work in the midst of God's people. So read these texts carefully, looking for things you've never seen before. Journal some of your thoughts, prayers, and questions. And we keep this powerful story going tomorrow with chapters four and five. I'll talk to you tomorrow.